I would say the most elite teams that I've had the opportunity to work with, for, and be around are laser focused on their purpose, their mission, their task. They prepare relentlessly, relentlessly to be the best at accomplishing all of those. I'm really excited to have my friend and colleague, Kevin Mangum, on the show today. Kevin retired in 2017 after 35 years of service as a three-star lieutenant general, where he served and commanded one of the most elite units in the world. He then joined Lockheed Martin as vice president, where he served for four years before joining our consulting team here at Teamalytics. In our conversation today, we focus on Kevin's work in both the military and the business world to understand what the most elite teams do differently from good teams and how you as a leader can take your team's performance to the next level. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us and being on the show today. Excited to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Rohan. I get to talk about my favorite thing, and that's helping leaders and teams be as good as they can be. This is going to be a fun conversation. So I like to start these conversations off with a kind of a broad question. How would you describe your leadership style? Great question. I would describe my leadership style as I aspire to be a servant leader, and that's to empower others, really put the needs of the team and teammates first, and helping the team and teammates be as good as they can be. And that is that is and has been my focus is on team and teammates. But that's also, I think, based on a foundation of I've always tried to establish a culture of accountability, holding myself and everyone in organizations on which I have the opportunity to lead and or serve, holding myself and others accountable for actions, behavior, conduct, and uh, performance. Doesn't always make me the most popular guy around, but... uh, it serves its purpose and people understanding what the expectation is. No, that's that's great. And I, and I want to dig into that a little bit more in our conversation as well. So maybe to help our listeners just get a little bit of context for you and, and where you're coming from, would you just share maybe a couple of minutes? Uh, I know you've had a long career and there's a lot of stuff we could talk about, but just give us kind of a, a hand wave of just your background and your career to this point. I'll do my best. And as you know, I don't really like talking about myself, but I will do my best. I was a soldier. Uh, I'm the son of a soldier. You know, as a result, I guess, of being a son of a soldier, I always wanted to be like my dad. Although he didn't go, I I went to West Point, became an Army aviator and a helicopter pilot like my dad. I was really blessed early in my career that I was exposed to a special opportunity that really was formative in my life, both as a soldier and as a person. In flight school, there was a panel of officers that were discussing with young lieutenants like me at the time about how to be successful in our first units. And uh, two of the officers on that panel uh, were from a secretive unit that did the toughest missions. Although they talked about it tangentially, I was intrigued by that. And Hmm knew that I wanted to be part of that unit. So I called them. Somehow I got a phone number. I called the unit and the person I talked to told me they were that I was the first lieutenant that they had ever spoken to. And I said, uh, well, does that mean you won't send me an application? They said, sure. They sent me an application. And then I think just perhaps out of 
curiosity of who the heck this guy was, they let me try out. And for some reason, they accepted me. And that unit now is known as the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, not pride of ownership or anything, but it's the best helicopter unit in the world and one of the most professional organizations of any kind that you can find. So they took this new lieutenant, the jury still out, whether that was a good idea. I learned my craft, uh, flying, fighting, and leaving really with the best. And uh, over the next 20-some-odd years, I spent most of my career there, and I commanded at every level in the regiment to include me in the 10th Colonel of the regiment. One of the highlights, I guess, of my career is I had the opportunity to lead the the longest, the helicopter force on the first combat operation into Afghanistan in October of 2001, 38 days after the after 9-11. And we took off from a Navy ship in the Indian Ocean and flew the longest air assault raid in history, putting commandos on the target. Mullah Omar, the lead, leader of the Taliban, his, his palace compound, and then bringing everybody home. And the Taliban, it was kind of like Billy Mitchell's raid. Taliban realized we had the reach, strength, capability, and capacity to reach out and touch them wherever they were. That was in 2001, obviously. Uh, I retired in 2017 as a lieutenant general, three-star general. I was a deputy commander and chief of staff of an organization, training and doctrine command, one of the Army commands. I had 50,000 people operating across across the world in 1,600 locations. After retirement, I worked for Lockheed Martin, a great company and an elite organization in its own right, and uh, served as a vice president of strategy and business development there. After about three years with Lockheed Martin, I realized what I missed about the Army, teaching, (laughs) coaching, mentoring, and as I mentioned before, my passion, helping leaders and teams be as good as they could be. So I joined Teamalytics to do just that. I'm loving every minute of it. Well, thank you for your service, uh, Kevin. Just uh, broadly to the to the army, to the country, to the leaders that you've served, and and obviously, I'm excited to be your teammate and get to serve together with you now. So it's been it's been a joy to get to know you and and an honor to get to serve with you. But I'd like to kind of zoom into some of that experience you've had in the 160th. And our listeners will will hear this; they won't see the T-shirt that you're wearing uh, with the logo right there on your heart. But I'd like to kind of pick up maybe the story there, and and we don't have to limit it certainly to that, but in your work at the 160th, not only were you leading and a part of one of the most elite helicopter units certainly in the world, but you also worked with some of the most elite units in the world on your missions. And so the first question I thought it might be interesting for us to get some, some of your thoughts on is what are some of the characteristics that make up these elite teams versus good teams? There are a lot of good teams out there, but there are very few that fit into that top 1% of the 1%. And so in your experience, as you've been a member, as you've been a leader, as you've worked with these teams, what what do you think makes the difference? I think it comes down to to focus and two broad things, focus and trust. First is, I would say the most elite teams that I've had the opportunity to work with, for, and be around are laser-focused on their purpose, their mission, their task, they prepare relentlessly, relentlessly to be the best at accomplishing all of those. The players are focused on the mission, not their job. A a former commander of Joint Special Operations Command once said that uh, 
a player's value is not a function to his or her proximity to the target. So hmm. whether or not you physically put your feet on the ground at the ultimate objective, it takes everybody, the collective, to get the right people to the right place at the right time. So as a result, people are focused on that mission instead of their job and hmm. do what is necessary to accomplish that mission and to achieve their purpose. The other thing is that that foundation of trust. And it's that level of trust that allows the leaders and the teams to hold themselves accountable. They hold themselves accountable. They hold their teammates accountable. They hold their team accountable because it's all about the outcome, the mission, the, and the purpose. It's not about trying hard. It's about winning and holding each other accountable on how and who what processes and what people or behaviors may be holding the team back. Those two things make it very challenging to lead one of these organizations. It's easy to provide the laser focus on hmm. the purpose, on the mission, on the task. It's harder to maintain the right touch to build the trust. And the best leaders that I worked for in those high-performing units, highest-performing units, had a light touch unless they found it necessary, and necessary is the key word, to impose their will. Mm. Th those leaders made their teams practice, 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 allowed them to fail and try again until they could master the task. And they forced subordinate leaders at every level to enforce the standard and to do their job. They let us know that the good news was we had the opportunity to lead our units. The bad news is, is we had the opportunity to lead our units and to <laughs> fail fast. And then they were master coaches providing feedback on everything we did. So the trust, the focus led to this secret sauce, which was feedback on whether or not we were accomplishing the task, accomplishing the mission to standard based on this kind of embrace of trust that we recognize that we all needed to be better. Yeah, that's really interesting. The laser-like focus on the ultimate outcome, not just my job, the trust component, so where I know that you've got my back and I've got yours, creates that environment where you almost crave the feedback and need the feedback and, and the feedback can be received in order to help achieve that mission. Um, I like that. I've never thought about feedback in that context before. And in those organizations, not only feedback was expected, it, it wasn't that it was a random event. It, feedback was expected and something that gets said often, no quarter given, no quarter expected that we used to call our after action reviews that you were going to receive and you are going to deliver brutally honest feedback. Yeah, I'm going to put a star on that and I want to come back to that. But maybe let's go back to the purpose, mission, task piece. And then thinking about trust, I think that that one is easier for me to connect to most of our listeners who are corporate leaders, leading teams in the, in the corporate world. How does a leader inside a company 
help that same level of focus on the purpose and the mission? I mean, I think when you're in one of these units and you've got a very clear objective, right? Get on the compound, go and get people to this particular location. And, and again, maybe it's an assumption on my part. It seems like it might be, and uh, in some levels, that objective or that mission is is so much more tangible than perhaps when we're leading a team inside an organization. And you know, you might be several steps away from the actual coalface, if you like, you know, within quotes. How does a corporate leader or leader of a team, let's say, really help keep that sense of mission and purpose and not just the job that we're here to do or that revenue target that we're trying to hit or that efficiency uh, goal that we have to achieve? What are some ways that you've seen leaders help instill that sense of mission and purpose or maybe some practical ways that we as leaders can, can learn from what you're sharing here? Uh, you know, I think ultimately it comes down to clearly articulating priorities and expectations. If everything is important, nothing is really important. So what are the real priorities of the organization? And the more complex the organization, the harder that becomes. But ultimately, it's what is the organization for? What's the organization about? And clearly articulating what the expectation is, what the values are, what the standard is in a way that's relevant to everyone, simple, easy to understand, relevant to everyone in the organization, and repeated often. So there's a clear understanding of what the values are and what is important to the organization to win. And that doesn't go to the tactics of how to win each business pursuit. It's more of a, this is who we are and how we are going to do things and what we are going to be ruthlessly and relentlessly focused on accomplishing as a team. Not the how, but the what. Hmm. Love that. Let's come down to this, you know, the, the term brutally honest feedback. And I've heard it kind of maybe rubs some, some people up the wrong way. It almost sounds like we're going to be mean and we're just going to tear into you, uh, you know, the brutal part, at least. <laughs> maybe not the, the honest part. How do I interpret that in terms of, you know, let's say a company or even maybe even an, inside our company as we do those after action reviews after all of our engagements? Well, so I think Back to my military experience in the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, our standard was plus or minus 30 seconds anywhere in the world. So we were very urgent and intense and <laughs> focused on a very specific time. But if we were 31 seconds late or 31 seconds early, we didn't get credit for being close enough. It hmm. was you were a second outside of the window. So, you know, that brutally honest was, hey, you get credit like horseshoes for being close. No, you don't get credit for horseshoes for being close. So the aspect of that is we would decompose all the elements of an operation and talk about what we needed to improve and what we needed to sustain. My observation as both a leader in industry and a coach and in industry is that teams, many teams appear to be reluctant to really decompose what it took to win a pursuit and, and what were the root causes of losing the pursuit or not winning the pursuit 
term that whichever way you want. If you're not a winner, you were a loser. That what were the the dynamics that led to one or the other? From the winning, you want to figure out how you can you reproduce that, even if it's in general terms. If it's a loss, what are the specific things that led to that so you don't do them again? And the challenge, I think, becomes making it a lesson learned instead of a lesson observed. Mm-hmm. And how do you drive the internal learning? How do you drive the learning into deploy that into every level of your organization? And you're not going to have a a truly candid conversation, if we want to use that word, to really lay the issues on the table if you're you're missing that level of trust and that clarity of purpose. Without that, I guess it's hard to have that honest conversation that you need to have. Absolutely. And and in many organizations, feedback is a four-letter word that you only get feedback if you're doing something wrong. And you can call it feedback, you can call it coaching, you can call it a discussion about what went right and what went wrong. You can talk about your standards. The critical piece is having the conversation and that leaders are making themselves vulnerable on what they could do better. Mm. And as well as giving people the space to really talk about how we can either replicate it or do it better in the future. Yeah, so you mentioned vulnerability, and I know there's a lot of research out there that shows that's a key ingredient in in trust is the leader, especially being willing to be vulnerable, that sort of fosters that level of trust. What else have you observed on, and through your career and your, your experience that helps a leader or helps a team build that trust that it takes to have those types of interactions and conversations? It really boils down to the ability to have the difficult conversation. The courage to have the difficult conversation? That's part of the ability, yes, sir. The other part of that, though, is having built a relationship with the person that the person on the receiving end of the difficult conversation doesn't perceive it as being an attack on them. Hmm. It's really how does the person receiving the feedback understand that it is about making them better and enabling them to accomplish the objective of the organization. It's about teammate and team, not a personal attack. And that takes a level of conversation and team building and relationship building before the fact so that the first conversation you're not having is, hey, you could have and should have done that better. Yeah, there's a whole investment of time and relationship and connection that needs to exist in order to, to, to for that conversation to go well, is what I hear you saying. Absolutely. And an observation that in working with companies and across industries and different size companies, and the full range is that folks are often leaders who sometimes confuse their job with being managers <laughs> are more focused on being efficient. It's about efficiency. It's hard to build relationships. It takes time, but it is a leveraged investment that is super effective that the time spent in building the relationships and building the trust is not efficient, but super, super effective. 
Well, that's a great segue into another question that I thought would be interesting for us to discuss a little bit, as you've got all of this experience in the military, but you've also had a pretty extensive run as an executive at Lockheed. In our work together over the last couple of years, you've worked with several leaders in several different companies. What are some of the differences that you've observed from the way that leaders are developed in the military versus what you've observed in in the corporate world? So uh, this is an effectiveness versus efficiency discussion as well. So, and this goes for civil service civilians as well as folks in industry. My observation is that most often people in those walks of life whether it be public or private sector, is they get promoted based on domain expertise. So if you're a great accountant, you get promoted because you're a rootin' tootin' accountant. If you're a great engineer, you get promoted based on your engineering expertise and sales, et cetera. At some point, you get to outstanding individual contributors get to a point where all of a sudden they find themselves leading a team Mm -hmm. and they've never been trained to do that. They're not equipped to do that and, and often struggle to do that. The army is just the opposite. The army will take a young Lieutenant out of college and put him or her in charge of a group of people while they're learning their job. So Kevin Mangum, for example, comes out of, initial uh, officer training and goes to a unit, I'm expected to take charge while I'm used, learning how to uh, do my job, how to perfect my craft. And with the sets and reps as a leader, as I gain domain expertise, I'm more effective as a leader applying that domain expertise downstream that I would be if I was, in my opinion, if I gained domain expertise and all of a sudden got thrown in the deep end of the pool having to deal with people. So it's leadership first, domain expertise second. Many times I think in industry it's domain expertise first and, and leadership second. You hire for attitude, you can teach skill. And it's a function of when you teach what skill in the sequence of a young man or woman's career. So Again, it goes back, I think, to that effectiveness and efficiency argument. Yeah, as a, as a young officer, you're leading people that have many, many times the domain expertise and experience that, that you have, but you're not there as the domain expert. You're there as a leader. And I think that is a very interesting observation that, that is often the other way around. And often the work we're doing with leadership teams is really helping build that leadership muscle and helping teams develop that ability to hone that skill of leadership and operating as a team, uh, which is which is where I know you, you're very effective in the teams that, that you work with every day. Yeah, very interesting perspective. And I think more and more companies are investing in those areas, but it still seems to heavily be weighted towards people with those technical skills and a demonstrated track record that now have to either absorb leadership somehow uh, from, from their observations, or they maybe just don't make it and then they just don't get promoted anymore, which is a shame. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kevin. Really enjoy, uh, obviously enjoy getting to work with you and enjoy every time I get to connect with you and get your thoughts. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back on and, and pick a couple of different topics, but really thank you for sharing some of your insights and your experience. 
I like to close these conversations with a few just rapid fire questions. So I'm just going to shoot and, and let you answer them. Favorite day of the week? Monday. I, I can't wait to get after it. <laughs> I love that. You might be the first person that said Monday. Uh, texting or talking? Talking. I think you got to be present to win. Favorite productivity hack for leaders? Build in time to think. Give yourself the space and time to provide thoughtful guidance because that's what your team wants, needs, and expects from you. Favorite phone app? Being an older fellow, I'm not necessarily a phone app person, but I'll say Pandora so I can <laughs> listen to music to calm the savage beast. <laughs> I love it. Most impactful book that you've read this year? Um, the most impactful book that I read is a book, Do Hard Things, and I'm drawing a blank on the author. And it's about a, a new perspective on resilience that we have gotten it wrong, that the tough coach, the tough military leader, it's about understanding what individual and team limitations are to be as good as they can be. So do hard things. Great book. Steve Magnus. I just, I just Googled it. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, best advice you've ever been given? Ooh, um, two pieces. And one is, is do the work. Uh, there's no substitute for doing the work. It's you got to put in the work to uh, to achieve the outcomes. And the other is is uh, stop saying I me mine. Think, live, and use the words we, us, and our. Oh, I love that. Really, really powerful. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I've, I've, I've taken a lot out of our conversation today, lots to think about. How do I really instill that sense of purpose, mission, and task, not just the job to be done? Investing the time, even though it feels like it might be inefficient, it's effective if you're willing to take the time to build that trust and relationships and really invest in the team so that we're able to have those candid conversations that can help us get better. Thank you for your time and, and your service. Thanks for joining us today. Look forward to next time. I'm assuming you're on LinkedIn and people can reach out to you there and see stuff that you're posting or at least interact with you there. Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn as well as uh, kevin.mangum at teamalytics.com. And thank you for the opportunity to work with you and your team, Rohan. I'm I'm loving every minute of it and gives me the opportunity to pursue my what I think my purpose is and certainly my passion. So thank you very much. Oh, I assure you the honor and the pleasure is ours. So uh, appreciate that very much. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Optimize Your Team podcast, head over to our website, teamalytics.com to find out how we can help leaders like you grow your team. Or if you have someone that you'd like to nominate as a guest, send me an email at podcast at teamalytics.com.